I love the way Clara Grace prances to children's church. I want to be remembered as a God-fearing man. I want my children to grow up and one day when they remember me to be able to say that my father fears God. This is the legacy that I want. It's a legacy that I strive for. And I say that acknowledging that I don't really care if they remember that their dad was a pastor, that their dad enjoyed studying details that do not really matter. I want them to remember that I feared God. Really, I want the same thing for our church, for our church and the community to be remembered or known as a congregation of people who fear God. If you remember, I think we've talked about this before. In the first century, during Jesus' day, those who were faithful to study God's Word in the synagogues and to obey God's commandments were known as the God-fearers. That's how they were known in the community. They were the God-fearers. It was that way because they were a commodity. The people generally living even in Jerusalem at the time, even the Jews at the time, were not faithful to God's Word, and they weren't faithful to God's commandments. So these people like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, his wife Elizabeth, even Mary and Joseph are in a group of people known as the God-fearers. I want to be the faithful remnant known as the God-fearers. I say that, though, and I think we have to redefine what it means to fear God. In our culture today, it's a good thing to be fearless. Somebody who's fearless today is somebody who's bold. Somebody who's maybe even um, has, has a, a knack for ingenuity. Somebody who's fearless isn't afraid to take risks, and normally those risks pay off, and so it's a good thing to be fearless. In fact, to say that somebody's afraid of something carries with it a lot of negative connotations. For Christians, I think that's caused us to half-heartedly embrace what it means to fear God. This morning, as we study God's Word, my prayer is that not only would we be able to embrace what it means to fear God, but that we would be encouraged and motivated to do so. As we get ready to study God's Word, I want us to consider how a better and more well-rounded understanding of what this Word means would spur us onward to wholeheartedly embracing fear so much that we strive for it to be an essential part even a vital part of the legacies we want to leave behind. If you would then turn with me to our text, we'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we will be looking at God's preserved word through the life of His servant Moses. 
This morning we'll be studying the first three verses in chapter 6, but I'm actually going to read and ask that we read all the way through verse 9 this morning, just so we get the picture of the context, what's being talked about. So as I read out loud, I ask that you read along with me. The Bible says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word, for your commandments and your statutes and your judgments. God, I pray that you would create in us this morning a heart that is receptive to the truths that you have for us. God, I pray that you would allow us to study your text and that you would not conceal its meaning from us, that it might become abundantly clear that we might be able to not only see, but to understand and appreciate the truths that are buried in your word. God, I pray that you would guide us in our worship this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The first thing that we can notice from the text that we're studying, again, not the entire text that I read, but only the first three verses, is the emphasis that is placed on one single commandment. If you look in verse 1, I read from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and it says, now this is the commandment. If you're reading from the King James, or I think even the New King James, it might use the plural. It might say, now these are the commandments. Both are a valid translation in this case, but I do want to note that in the original Hebrew that this was written in, there is an emphasis on a singular. There's an emphasis on a singular, and you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to see it. If you look at the text, we start off with this. If you just scan through this passage really fast and try and find what this is pointing at. This is why I read beyond verse 3. This is pointing to a single commandment Found in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
Now, I say that the King James Version is a valid translation in translating this, that these are the commandments. But let me point out that this single commandment encompasses the whole of God's law. This single commandment encompasses the whole of God's law. I'm not saying that on my own authority, I promise. Jesus taught this to me. And he taught this to the disciples and the lawyers when he was confronted by a lawyer who asked, Teacher, teacher, what is the greatest of all the commandments? If you don't believe me, you can look in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, teacher, what is the greatest of all of the commandments? And Jesus responded, it is this. That quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, or with all your might. This one law encompasses everything that the faithful remnant need to know. It might be helpful to understand the author's purpose in writing this to understand how and why this single commandment is so important. So let's step back for a second. This book, Deuteronomy, was written, most likely it was an oral tradition for a while, but it was at least spoken by Moses to the Israelite nation as they were getting ready to leave his leadership as they were departing his leadership to enter into the promised land that they had been waiting for for so long. So Moses, at the end of his tenure, as the leader of this nation, guiding them and directing them um, as, as he meant to do in obedience to God's Spirit, of course, through the wilderness, Moses departs with these words accounting the law that God had given to them once again so that they might remember it, so that they might be faithful to it, so that they might be able to observe what is being written. If we go back, we even find in uh, Matthew, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, God speaking to Moses after Moses has restated the Ten Commandments again, but there in verse 29, God says what He desires from His people who are about to enter His promised land. Oh, that they had such hearts as they thus always to fear Me and to keep all My commandments, that it might go well with them that their and their descendants forever. The motive behind this entire book is to encourage the people of Israel to remain faithful to God's Word, to remember what God has given them, that they might have a good life. Because we have a Father who's given us laws not for the purpose of robbing us of joy, but in fact of giving us an abundance of joy that we might be able to enjoy life. all the commandments rolled up that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our might. The exhortation then to follow this commandment, the commandment to love God, is that we might be spurred onward to live in a fear of God. Now, I haven't connected the dots yet this morning, have I? 
But I want you to see in this passage, right from the very beginning, there is a close-knit relationship between this commandment to love God and to fear God. There's a close-knit relationship to love God and to fear God. How do those two things relate? We might think that if I fear a parent, Perhaps that parent has been abusive in some way. It's not a good thing to have feared your parent. What is this relationship? It's one and the same. We have to at least somewhat understand what it means to fear. When we talk about fear, think of it like this. When you make plans with someone and you aren't able to go, you say, I'm afraid I just can't make it. Or maybe whenever you see your two-year-old daughter walking out of the kitchen with an open-top cup and it's full of grape juice and she's walking onto the carpet, I'm afraid she might spill it. I'm afraid I might not be able to do a good job because I'm distracted. I love God so much. Because I understand the love that he has for me that I'm afraid of disappointing him. I'm afraid of not measuring up to his expectations. I'm so overwhelmed with the magnitude of God's love and his grace towards me. That I'm afraid because I realize I did nothing to earn it. There is a close-knit relationship between the love that we have for God and the fear that we have of God. Outside of that, when we look at the purpose behind God's commandments, it makes sense that we might be afraid. Look at our passage again this morning. If you look in verse 1, you'll find that God's purpose is that you may do all of these commandments in the land in which you are going. So that, in verse 2, it says that keeping His statutes and His commandments that He has commanded us to all the days of our lives, that our days may be long. Not just long. Go on in verse 3, describing the people of Israel as prosperous, multiplying greatly in the Lord that in the land that the Lord has promised them, in a land flowing with honey. Again, because God's commandments do not exist for the purpose of robbing us of joy, but for our benefit, just like a parent's rules for their children most of the time do not exist for robbing them of joy, but, of help, but to help them stay safe, to protect them, I don't have many rules with my children, um, but I do not like it when Charlotte walks around the house with a sucker because there's a stick on it, and the stick, if you look at her profile, is just as long as her neck. It's common sense, but she doesn't understand it. That's why she, I don't like her with suckers. She doesn't get it because she doesn't see the common sense that I see. Sometimes it seems like I'm robbing her of joy, and I'm not. I might add, though, that as we begin this series, 
um, this series through the, this chapter in Deuteronomy, and we look at the purpose and the vision that God has for family, not only in his kingdom, but also in his church. I promise I'm not speaking from my months and months and just a wealth of experience that I have as a parent. But I'm relying completely on what is written in God's word. Looking at the purpose behind God's law, we see that the reason for it exists for our benefit. And as such, we might be afraid if we really recognize this and realize this, acknowledge our finite minds and our inability to understand everything that God has for us. Because the God who has set these commandments and these statutes and these laws and everything that he's asked us to do has done it with a purpose that we might prosper from it that we might even benefit from it. And when we realize that, at least in some way, I think our selfishness might make us afraid that we can't hold up to the commandments that we've been given. All of these things come together and they paint the picture of God, the creator of the universe, the one who is the sole source of power in the universe, the one who holds all things together with his hands, who knows all things, who's capable of all things, who wants what is good for us. Even when it doesn't seem that way. When we acknowledge who he is, we acknowledge who we are, and we see the relationship between this loving father who's created us and his law, we should be afraid that we would observe it. It would make sense that there would be some trepidation in disobeying someone who only wants what is good for us. Moreover, the encouragement to fear God stands by this commandment to love God. Because when we truly love God, when our hearts truly are overwhelmed and overflow with the love of Him, it forces us to see our own sinfulness clearly. When we truly have a reverence and an appreciation for God's love, it forces us to confront the sinfulness that is born into us and to see it clearly. A lot of times we run away from it, but if you really look at your sinfulness clearly, if you really allow it to wreck you, it draws you closer to God. Because it makes it more abundantly clear how much we need Him. We should be afraid of our own sinfulness. Genuine fear of God is evidence, then, of our love for Him. I want to be careful in saying that because a lot of times I think we think of, or I don't, I say we, and by we I'm speaking very generally, not of anyone here, but... I think a lot of times when people think about church and they think about the realities of the eternal, when they think about heaven and hell, they think of salvation as some sort of fire insurance to protect them from the less desirable eternal state. 
And that's not the case. When I talk about fear, it will never be sufficient. The fear of hell will never be sufficient enough to save somebody. But the fear that comes from loving God, the fear that comes from having a relationship with a God who loves us, is enough to motivate us to want and desire to obey God's Word. It is a motivator not only to push onward to love God, but it is a motivator to push onward to obey God. And this is the whole point of Moses' writing in Deuteronomy 6. If you go back, verses, chapters 1 through 5 are recounting the law, the history, where the nation has been delivered from, from... And by the way, this is all a shadow of what we face in the New Testament. Delivered from Egypt, bondage, sin, and slavery. Just like the, the sinful slavery and the bondage that... Christians face before they come to a place of knowing a Savior. They were delivered, not by Moses, but by God, who parted the Red Sea and made all things that they did possible. Just like Christians who were delivered from their sinfulness by the grace of God. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Just like we today wait for the day that we get to go into our promised land that is not in this world, but that is completely free of all the effects and the consequences and the brokenness that sin has left. Because we're looking forward to a promised land that is flowing with milk and honey like Canaan never was. Then in verse chapter 6, Moses is writing, calling God's people to love God, to really confront the love of God. And then if we wanted to go on into chapter 7, we're talking about obedience because obedience is so important to living a spiritual life and growing in our spiritual life. Real obedience, which by the way is different than compliance. Compliance means you do what you're told when you're told you're compliant. Obedience means you do what you're told when you're told, but it's different because it also means you do it with a good attitude. If we really think about our children, we don't want compliant children. We want obedient children. In fact, the the hymn doesn't go, trust and comply. It goes, trust and obey. Fear is a motivator that pushes us onward to not only love God more, but also to obey Him. But God's concern was not resting solely on a generation that was going into Canaan. Realize that there is an emphasis in this chapter. Moses is writing, and he's not just writing to the people that he has led, but he's writing to all of the people that will come from them. Verse 2 makes reference that not only that you should obey, that your sons may obey and your sons' sons may obey. Then again in verse 3, we see that there's this picture of this generation multiplying. Because Moses, as carried along by the Holy Spirit, through God's influence, 
has a vision for a generation that forces generation, that causes generations to love God. A central part of our fear of God is the generations that will be impacted by our own obedience. Listen to what I'm saying. If we love God, it might be sufficient for us when confronted with our own sinfulness to acknowledge the grace of God and to keep on moving. That God's grace is able to cover a multitude of sins, that even a great amount of disobedience, that God's grace is sufficient for us. But think about the generations that will be impacted by a spiritual walk that reflects that. You've heard the saying about living in a glass house. We like our homes because we're able to be ourselves and relax. When children come into the world, it really is like living in a glass house because they see everything that we do. They see everything that we are. And you might be, I don't know, perhaps, maybe I'm just feeling argumentative today, but you might be sitting here this morning saying, I don't have kids in my house, and so this sermon doesn't apply to me at all. In fact, the, in fact this sermon series doesn't apply to me at all. Maybe my children are grown, so on, whatever. But listen, this matters to you too. Maybe because one day you'll have children. Maybe because, let me give you a second reason, because the Bible pretty clearly calls you to be an active and participating member of a church. And as such, that means that you have a role to play in rearing the children of the church. even if God hasn't called you to be a parent. He's called you to be a member of His church, which means that you have to understand what it means to rear a child. And if those two reasons aren't good enough, how about this? It's in the Bible. And God's Word promises that it is sufficient, everything that we need for faith and for life, which means you can't skip the parts that don't apply to you. But I wonder, do we look at raising children in the same perspective? When we think about what we want for our children, I think most Christians would agree that we could list out that I want them to be a successful, contributing member of society. I want them to have a strong moral and an ethical character. But the real challenge whenever we look at God's commandment here and the relationship that He's giving to the family, particularly the family, wouldn't an atheist have that exact same list of hopes and desires for their children? It isn't good enough There's something greater that we have to desire, that we have to want. There's something far more important that we need to include in that list. In fact, maybe get rid of that list and put this at the top, that our children would love God. Because this is the commandment, the laws, 
the statutes and the judgments. That our children would love God. That they would know what it means to love God. There's only one way they're going to see that. There's only one way they're going to be able to trust that. If God's church truly reflects a people who loves God. If God's church reflects a people who do not half-heartedly embrace fearing God, but they wholeheartedly embrace what it means to fear God. Not only so that we can be an example, but so that we can be an encouragement. The reality is, growing up, neither of my parents taught me how to fear God. Neither of my parents gave me an example to follow, but it was God's church. It was the people of the church who made fearing God the priority in their life, who were able to show me what it meant. And they were able to put to bed any insecurities about the truth and and the veracity of God's word because I was able to see the example of it in them. This morning, we've looked at God's word, the introduction to, I'll just say it, I think this is my favorite chapter of scripture. Because every time I come to it, I'm forced to confront who I am. We say that it's important that we love God, but do we really allow ourselves to sit in that to the point that we are wrecked by how much we fail? If a husband were failing his wife and he saw the grief that it caused her, would he not be wrecked Would he not be overcome by his failures? Would there not be a burden within him? And the same the other way around. As a child loves their parents when he sees the pain that he causes them in disobedience, when he sees the distance that it forces in their relationship, it hurts and it's painful. You desire to fix it. You desire to reconcile it. As a Christian who has a father who has never forced any distance in our relationship, who is absolutely perfect, who's never abandoned us, who's never forsook us, who created us because he wanted to have a relationship with us. When we realize that all of the distance, all of the misunderstanding, all of the struggle in our relationship with that God was brought because of our own actions, it forces us to confront how truly atrocious disobedience is. This is my favorite chapter of Scripture because it has uplifted me. 
and it has blessed me. But also because it's made me realize how important it is to be an example and to be a member of God's community, his kingdom and his church. To know what it means to love him. To accept what it means to be loved by him. And we've studied this introduction. I want to ask this morning, are we able to embrace wholeheartedly fearing God? Have we defined that clearly enough or are there questions that we still need to consider? I want to encourage you and ask you that if you have questions about what it means to fear God, that you would seek out the answers. And I pray that I would be a useful resource for you, but I realize I might not be. And so if that's the case, let me know so that I can help find a useful resource for you. There's not anything more important than our love of God causing us to have a fear relationship with him because we realize how great he is. That's really the only invitation that I have this morning. Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or 60 years, or maybe you're not a Christian yet, would you allow yourself to dig deep in understanding what God's love means for you? we sing this song of invitation, I ask that you would consider this, that if you need to respond, that you would feel comfortable coming forward to me or speaking with me afterwards. But before we sing, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for loving me and for loving every person in this room. God, I thank you for your grace and the comfort and all the things that you provide us. And God, I just pray that you would remove from me any distraction that is keeping me from being able to understand what it means that you love me. God, I pray that as we sing this invitation, that your spirit would continue to move in our hearts, that you would continue to guide us into understanding and response, because we know that your word never returns void. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?